0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the time in which we are in. We thank you that you have called us, called us to faith in Jesus, called us to be your children, called us to be your ambassadors to this dark world. Lord, we thank you for the living hope that you have given to us, for the newness of life that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that that would strengthen us and that that would drive us to bring this gift to someone else. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Politics aside, put that out there first. Anyone who has been paying attention to the stock market the past couple of months had a lot to be nervous about, right? By the time the market closed on December 31st, of 2018 it had suffered the worst loss since the U.S. entered the recession of 2008. It wasn't just the U.S., however. The global equity market lost 15 trillion dollars from its peak in January 2018 and to early December 2018. 15 trillion dollars. Economic analysts fear that the market may be on the brink of a bear market with a possible additional recession on the horizon. According to the financial world, there's a lot to be nervous about. The financial world isn't the only thing many of us have fear of, though. Many of us have entered a new year with a lot of uncertainty, whether it be with a job, source of income, health issues, family problems, or any given number of nerve-wracking subjects. That's what we're taking into the new year with us. You might be sitting here thinking, whoa, I picked the wrong Sunday to be here. This seems like a pretty bleak picture he's painting. And that's the point. We're sort of piggybacking on our message about worry last week, this morning. We'll see how even when it seems like our worlds and the world is spinning out of control, what foolproof investment we do have and why it's the only thing that really matters and gives us our peace. We're going to be in the first chapter of 1 Peter this morning. As, as you know, Lord willing, we'll pick back up in our 1 Corinthians series next week. Before we jump into our passage this morning, though, I want to set up a little bit of a background to to what Peter is writing into here. Biblical scholars generally agree that 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter around the year 64 AD, most likely from Rome. Another famous ancient... uh, event happened in 64 AD as recorded by the Roman histori- historian Tacitus and that was the great fire of Rome different rumors circulated about the then Roman Emperor Nero's involvement in the starting of the fire, but the end result was that Nero pinned the blame on Roman Christians and began openly persecuting them by being torn apart by wild beasts, nailed to crosses, or burned alive to serve as human lanterns. Looking at different literary clues in 1 Peter, we can come up with a couple of different scenarios as to when and why this letter was written. Peter doesn't explicitly talk about physical persecution, i.e. being killed, tortured, etc., but mainly about social persecution, i.e. mocking, slander, etc. The first one, the first scenario, is that Peter wrote this letter just before the great fire started, but he can already see more and more persecution developing against believers in Jesus. The second scenario is that it is during this Roman imperially sanctioned persecution by Nero that Peter is writing from Rome to these regions he mentions in verse 1 of 1 Peter, where he sees the threat of physical on top of already prevalent social persecution to be imminent, and he wants to equip those believers there. Whatever the situation was going on in Rome at the time of Peter's writing, I think we can all agree that Peter was writing into a situation fraught with uncertainty and fear of the future. Of livelihoods, jobs, income, families, safety, and even the fates of lives. So the first point that we come to in this letter that Peter writes to the the believers in the regions in verse 1 is the gift the gift. Knowing this background, we can better understand the point of what Peter writes here in chapter 1. According to one biblical scholar, what's interesting to note here, and that you kind of see this in the English, uh, you can see it at least in the NASB, if you look through this, what do you notice? For the most part, in the English, but in the original Greek, verses 3 through 12 are one long sentence. Look at that, at least verses 3 through... uh, Nine are one sentence, as you see there. And the, Peter did this for a point. He did that because in that world, that would have captivated Peter's audience to actually listen to what he had to say. So he used this uh, uh, technical uh, way of saying things to get, grab people's attention so that they'll listen to the rest of what he has to say. In verse 3, he picks up with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We often think of John 3.16 as the gospel in a nutshell in one verse, right? But look at that verse. Isn't that also the gospel in a nutshell in one verse too? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why I gave this quick background up to this point, because we know what fear and uncertainty feels like, don't we? We know what fear and uncertainty looks like. Imagine the fear and uncertainty of a first century believer living in the Roman Empire, especially in the days leading up to and during Nero's gruesome persecution of believers. Now read those words. Read them again. The emphasis is on none other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis is on none other than the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, creator and sustainer of the universe, the triune God. Why is God to be blessed, even in the midst of such crippling fear? Exactly for what Peter writes here in verse 3. For according to His great, Mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's it. That's the foundation. Even as the world around us spins out of control, this is our foundation. Not only has this God had great mercy upon us, but the purpose of that great mercy is to cause us to be born again to a new life. God in a way has caused us to be born into a new universe. One where we are in this world but not of it. One where we interact with the world around us but we have been freed from the fears that go along with it. One that we can look at the world completely different from the one who has not been given eternal hope. One where we currently operate and live an earthly life in this world, but we know this world is not our home, and we are merely passing through on our way to our true heavenly home. Philippians 3.20 tells us, For our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here, it's in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that, Peter will write later on in this letter, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners of this world to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And that's only part of our living hope in verse 3. That's only part of it. We know that we have our true home to look forward to because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He rose again from the dead to defeat our greatest enemy, the ultimate and just payment for our sin, ultimate death, the second death. He rose again to give us the proof and hope that we too will someday rise from the dead when our Savior returns for us. When we will be raised again along with the believing loved ones who have gone on before us, and we will all be in our Savior's presence together. Can I get an amen? And in the meantime, he rose again to give us living hope in the here and now. That even in the middle of fear and pain, we have God himself, the Holy Spirit, literally indwelling us, giving us the strength to face any situation and reminding us of the truth and promises of God. That is living hope. No one that is of the world has that. We are the only ones Who have had that given to us. That truly is living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the truth that it starts and ends with God is how the entire rest of the letter follows. Even in the midst of heartache. Even in the midst of loss. Even in the face of a discouraging medical report. In the face of lost employment or lost income. This gives us hope. That is why it is God and only God whose name is to be praised. And here's why. The word used here for God's mercy is not just sympathy, as in responding to one's dark situation with, oh, that's terrible. And you sort of go on your way. That's not what is being said here. The word that that is used is a word to describe active mercy. Not just empathy. Empathy. Active mercy. It's a word that described God not only having compassion on us, but doing something about it by sending His Son to die on a cross and then rise again from the dead. We are born into a new life with a new father, a new family, and we're born into a living hope. The basis of which is the life of the resurrected Son of God. That can never be taken away, that can never be tainted by the world, but it has nothing to do with the world other than redeeming it in new creation someday. That's why we can hinge our entire hope and eternity on it. It was done in the world, but its eternal value completely transcends the world. And because we can hinge our hope on that reality beyond our new life, God has given to us an inheritance we can rely on. Verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. As we've talked about, stocks take a nosedive. Retirement funds dry up, benefits decrease, but God's inheritance is outside of any economy. We have a spiritual inheritance that we experience both now partially and fully when we are united with God. And we have the promise of knowing that God will take care of our needs in the here and now, no matter what the market boasts or decries. We looked at Jesus' promise last week about how all we need to do is focus on pursuing the kingdom of God as well as fostering an environment where God makes us more and more like the image of His righteous Son. And God will take care of our needs. That is not something we need to worry about. All we need to worry about is pursuing the kingdom of God. Paul also writes to the Philippians that because of their generosity, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And on top of all of that, we have an eternal inheritance to look forward to. And it's not kept in a safety deposit box, not wrapped up in real estate, not invested in anything, but kept safe in heaven. That's the safest place it could be, right? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6:19 through 21 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." That frees us from a focus, emphasis, or even fear connected to accruing earthly wealth. We're supposed to be wise and good stewards of what God gives to us, but we can't be fearful of it. And we must not be fearful of it. But what is all the good of all of this if there is no guarantee to all of this? Verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This isn't to mean that we won't be persecuted or even killed for the cause of Christ. So what does this mean? It means that God will know about everything that happens to us. He's already decided what's going to happen to us. He's already written it. In his book, according to Psalm 139, he is so faithful to us that we are being closely watched over as if we were under a military watch. The word used here for guard is the same word used in Philippians 4.7. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard as if under a military guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Even if our earthly bodies are destroyed, God personally sees to it as under a military guard that our souls, the most important part of us, are closely protected and saved by Him. So we talked about the gift. What we have been given that no one else in the world has been given. And secondly, the goal. What this means. Because of this, verse 6 In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter says you can rejoice because that which we see is not the end. It's not the end. If physical happiness is our ambition in life, then we will lead very sad lives. But we can rejoice because our hope is not in what we see or feel. Our confidence is based and focused on our spiritual identity in Christ. That is why we can rejoice even in the midst of social persecution, even in the midst of physical pain, or even in the midst of humiliating death. That's why our living hope results in and looks th- that's what our living hope results in and looks like. In our earthly lives. We have no fear of anything. Even the destruction of our physical bodies. Because our souls are protected by God himself. Verse 7. So that the proof of your faith. Being more precious than gold. Which is perishable. Even though tested by fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. As we've discussed time and time again, trials and persecution, while painful, are necessary. They are required for our spiritual growth. They work out your faith and refine its strength. If I asked you right now to lift 50 reps of 100 pounds, would you be able to do it? But with time and perseverance and lifting weights you'd come a little bit closer to it, wouldn't you? God leads us through trials in our lives to grow our faith. That's the point of them. The trials and tests and and, and painful times that we go through in our life are not to destroy us, but to grow us as he leads us through each trial, our faith grows stronger and stronger. But it's not your talent. It's not your strength. It's not your tenacity. It's God leading you and growing you. Do you think of your faith as a foolproof investment? That's, that is what you're focusing, your motivation, how you see the world, and what you're doing with your life? Are you daily investing in it? Is the mercy God has shown you what you hinge your hope on? Or are you still walking around this world being tossed and fro by whatever the world throws at you? Peter, right here in verse 7, refers to our faith as more valuable than gold. What are we investing more into? Gold, i.e. paychecks, fatter bank account, sacrificing morals for money, or our faith? What is more valuable to you? In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a man who leaves on a business trip and gives one servant five coins, another servant two coins, and a third servant one coin. When the man left, the first two servants took the coins their master gave them and invested them into earning more. But the third servant buried his coin in the ground and didn't do anything with it. When the master returned, he praised the first two servants, but took the coin away from the third servant. Think of the coins as your faith, spiritual gifts and gifts that God has given to you. Is what is most important to you, investing those through various trials in order to get more faith from your master, stronger faith from your master? Are you striving to invest by undergoing persecution for the sake of sharing the gospel with others? Or are you like the third servant, being too scared to do anything with your faith and not having it grown? Just like the first two servants in Matthew 25, Peter says that those who invest in their faith and in the kingdom of God, this foolproof investment will be praised when Jesus comes back. It's a foolproof investment. Those who invest in their faith and the kingdom of God by surrendering to the Spirit are praised for that faith because, verse 8, and though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples who actually saw him, encourages his readers, those who haven't seen him. No doubt, as Peter was writing this, Jesus' words to Thomas in John 20 uh, came to his mind as he was reading these. And Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Even in the midst of trials and persecution, our new life And our inheritance in Christ still gives us a joy that is too much for words to express. Even in the midst of our trials, heartache, and pain, we have been given the gift of inexpressible joy full of glory. That does not make any sense to the world. If anything, according to the world, our trials, heartache, and pain are reasons to walk away from God. Because surely a good God wouldn't do these things to us. Not only does God redeem and use trials, heartaches, and pain in our lives to grow us, but He gives us the inexpressible joy in the middle of that darkness when there's nothing else to be joyful about. That seems completely incongruent, and that's the point. It's one more thing that God gives to us that the world simply cannot attain. The world's happiness is only connected to good investment returns, the lack of pain, and the lack of problems. God's inexpressible joy is given especially in those times of unspeakable pain and darkness. That's also a part of our living hope that we have been given No no matter what happens in life, this is the ultimate goal. This is what we should be focused on and eternally grateful for. Verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Jesus gives us a powerful message in connection with this. And he says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. That's what he concludes this part with. So don't be afraid. Why? You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. This gives us a hope that only God can give and is completely disconnected from anything the world can offer so we have the gift we have the goal thirdly we have the grace our living hope cannot help but lead us to eternal gratitude i'm not talking about technology or modern medicine even though god sometimes gives those as gifts in this life What I'm talking about is the fact that God has been weaving the story of redemption of mankind throughout all history. Verses 10 through 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter here also encourages his readers by theologically explaining to them why they could put full trust in the Word of God. It was written by men, prophets, yes, but with the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, guiding their words. They wrote words from the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, to Nehemiah, generally considered by biblical scholarship to be the last Old Testament book written all pointing to a deliverer, the Messiah. They revealed more and more about this Messiah, what he would be, what he would do, and what hope he would bring. These prophets wanted to know about this salvation they were speaking of, so they searched and explored what God might mean through the other scriptures, but they still didn't have the full picture. They knew there was going to be a Messiah, but didn't know who He was or at what point in history He would come. Finally, the answer God gave them was probably not the one they wanted or or were thinking of. It was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves. Man, hundreds of years of prophecy given and they weren't even serving themselves. They weren't even serving the nation of Israel. Who are they serving? But you in these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The entirety of the Old Testament, every prophecy given in the Old Testament was for us, who had the gospel preached to us. All the prophecies written about were not even to ultimately serve the people of Israel at that time. The message of the gospel and the salvation and redemption it gives was always meant to serve those who would recognize who the Messiah is and put their faith and trust in his death and resurrection. Both those of Jewish background and those of Gentile background. On top of that, the prophetic words of salvation found in the Messiah can never, get this... They can never be fully understood by angels. You understand the gospel more than the angels do. They can never spiritually understand God's love, transformation, redemption, provision, because they're not human. We as humans living in the years following the mid-first century have been given this incredible gift we have had the savior and messiah revealed to us and we have all the spiritual blessings inheritance and hope that goes along with that how often do we thank god for that that this is the time in which we were born and these are the things that have been revealed to us through his word how often do we thank god for that how often do we stand in awe of that has it ever taken our breath away and it can grow. It can multiply and compound. We can gain an even deeper understanding of it through trials, hardship, and persecution. Instead of being things to avoid and run away from, these things can be celebrated because we can have an even deeper understanding to it. When does the current contemporary American mindset ever teach that? It is totally counterculture and yet desirable because Peter tells us that just as the Christ suffered and was glorified, those who pick up their cross and follow him through suffering will also be glorified. It's to be desired. Everything is wrapped up in the last part of verse 12. It has been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels look for. Anything that we've been given has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. We didn't come to it on our own. It was revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Nothing we can do in this life on our own perseverance or motivation can produce anything lasting or meaningful. The world will always fail us. Our bodies will always fail us. Only by completely surrendering to the Holy Spirit and the new life given to us will we be able to live a truly joyful life. So, as we walk further and further into this new year, no matter what fears arise, no matter what trials we face, no matter what loss, and heartache, and pain we walk through, one thing always remains the same. God's great mercy actively gives us living hope in the death and resurrection of our Savior. And He is supplying our needs, giving us the strength we need, giving us the growth we need, and protecting our souls until the very end. Resting in that, let us be a church who actively invests in our faith and the kingdom of God, sharing it, multiplying it, compounding it, and having it grown in us. Let us reach deeper and deeper levels of faith through persecution and trials. Let us rejoice in the overwhelming blessing it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, identify with His suffering, commune with His Spirit, and be thankful for the gift, the foolproof investment of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the exciting and celebratory truths that this passage reveals to us. We thank You that the Spirit of Christ is were in what was in these words and that your word is living and active and it is it is producing power in us through your holy spirit lord i pray that as we go walk further and further into this new year each trial each heartache we would take as an opportunity to have our faith grown more and more and even as the apostle james writes an opportunity for joy Lord, we thank you that you are the one who gives us inexpressible joy, even in the midst of these painful experiences of darkness. We know that you are with us every step of the way, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.